Good morning. My name is Jeremy, and I'm a Pharisee. Uh, you have no idea. Psalm 26 is one of those psalms that it's tough to get your hand on, handle on. Uh, and this is why preaching through the psalms is so helpful. So Pastor Jeff, in the time of confession, read Romans 3, 23 to 24. But what does that look like in life? So you have a didactic proposition in Romans 3, but how is that lived? What does it look like? Psalm 26 is one of those psalms where you can read it and hopefully relate, because it's just like you. It's a mess. It's here, there, and everywhere. Uh, Particularly, what do you do when you're accused of something you didn't do? Ever have that happen? Yeah? What do you do? When I was in high school, my, one of my high school teachers was accused by one of my classmates of doing something bad to her. And uh, he didn't do it. He was innocent. And yet he was suspended for a long time. And then finally she said, it's probably a dream or something. I'm not saying that because women are evil and guys are innocent. could be the other way around. But Psalm 26 hopefully will give you some help in life for how to live as somebody not at all righteous and yet righteous in Christ and yet comparatively to the world, hopefully living more righteous than worldlings how to simultaneously walk in integrity and yet plead with God to redeem you from hell. All the while, learning to hate. Did you notice that when we sang it this morning? Was that tough for you? You said, I hate the wicked. You sang it. Coops, do you have that line from Psalm 26? Can you put it up there? I think it was the second stanza. This is one of the reasons I love the Psalms. It teaches us kind of the whole range of God's truth. Yeah, I hate the gathering of all who with wickedness comply. Do you? Isn't that something? It should be humbling to you to uh, realize that you sing things that are not yet fully true of you. This is what we're here for. To be challenged by God's word. To, be, to learn to hate what God hates. That's a part of our Christian walk. So let me read Psalm 26, and then I want to give you some kind of bigger overview stuff of it, background, and then go verse to verse, and then I want to talk about this issue of integrity. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. 
I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices, and in whose right hand are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, remember your promises to us. We hope in them. Give us comfort in all of our afflictions. Give us life. God, in this world, the insolent deride us and yet teach us to stand firm and not turn it away from your law at all because we love you. God, we think of your rules and take comfort. May indignation seize us because of the wicked, those who forsake your law. Your statutes have been our songs. We remember your name in the night, O Lord. Teach us to keep your law. May your blessing fall on us because we love your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 26, as we see here again, is of David. And so don't forget as you read this and hear of David's protestations of his own personal righteousness that David was a sinner. We might think him a good man if you knew him, but if you knew him really well, you wouldn't think him that good. He was not perfect. And so he's not claiming here moral perfection before God at all. He's dealing with some kind of conflict where he's got accusers who are bringing such serious accusations against him that it's threatening his own standing before God's people and his ability to go to worship with them. And in the midst of that incredible difficulty, he does the one thing that we should do. He goes to God. Right? He goes to God. Vindicate me, O God. He's not saying, in my entire life, O God, I've done nothing wrong. May you vindicate me generally for all time because I'm so good. He's saying, no, I'm a sinner be gracious to me, redeem me, O oh God. I deserve to be swept away with the wicked. Redeem me. And in this instance, where my enemies bring such false accusations against me that I can't go to your house, I'm so driven, vindicate me. That's the gist of this psalm. At the heart of it is verse 8, 6, 7, 8, but especially verse 8. What drives everything in this psalm is David's desire to be with God. That's it. That's the heart of it. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Because of the conflict, because of the accusations, David's driven out. And even though he's far from the house of God, he can't actually be there with God's people. He loves it. He loves God. He loves the place where God dwells. He loves the place where he gets together with God's people and enjoy God's glory so much that he wants vindication so that he can come back to worship God with God's people and see God's glory. That's the heart of this psalm. That's what's going on. So what drives David's desire for vindication isn't vindication. 
isn't being seen right by his wife. Good luck. The one person that knows that you're never right. Amen, brothers? <laughs> Vice versa, we can do that too. It's, it's just not a thirst to be right, to be seen right. He desires to be with God and to with God's people. That's what drives the entirety of the psalm. In fact, that's the definition of integrity in this psalm. We'll get to that in a moment. So Psalm 26 then is a situation with enemies. There's confusion. And David is appealing again for God's vindication that he can draw near to God. And so again, don't neglect the reality that if you're going to be in leadership, the one thing that you'll constantly deal with is conflict. Always. And those within, with whom you're in conflict with will sometimes accuse you terribly. Awful things that you didn't do. When I was at my previous church, I know I've told a lot of stories of this, but when you're looking at this stuff, they just come back. And, and they presented their accusations at the annual congregational meeting without me in the room. <laughs> and... Uh, they were right. I, I am proud, but not in the way they were talking about it. And just out of nowhere, they, they desired me not to be the pastor anymore, and they thought the simplest way was to destroy the church. They could have just asked, like, could you leave? I might have. We, we see it in our culture. We see false accusation. That's, that's what's going on here. And so David goes to God again. So that's one thing. Keep that in mind. Isn't that what Christian is? Don't we just go to God? Don't we go to God in all of our troubles? Don't we go to him in all of our sorrows? Charles Spurgeon says the Christian life is nothing but beating a path to the cross. That's it. That's what David's doing here. So that's the gist of the psalm. He wants to be with God's people in God's temple to see God's glory. And the conflict has driven him away. So he wants vindication so he can come back. So let's go now uh, verse by verse. Again, this psalm is variable. It's not a straight line. Those of you who enjoy, let's say, the letters of Paul because it's one statement that connects to another statement that connects to another statement with a lot of fours, therefore, four, therefore. It's linear. That's not going to be this. This is a poem. It's a psalm expressing real life, middle of conflict. David's probably doubting his own righteousness in this, and he just flees to God so he can be brought back. So this is, this is meandering. Uh, so there are uh, several discernible parts. Verses 1 to 3 are the first part. Verses 4 to 5. Then 6, 7, 8 form the heart of it. 9 and 10 are another. And then 11 and 12 conclude. So let's go through verses 1 to 3 first. So he starts out with his prayer of vindication. Vindicate me, O Lord. Now that might seem strange. Who would go to God asking God to prove him in verse 2, to test him? God is the God who sees everything perfectly. God is the God who knows you inside and out. He'd be the last one that you'd go and say, 
hey, God, would you examine me and prove how right I am? But again, this isn't talking about general overall righteousness. This is in this conflict between party A and party B. Party B is wicked, but they're accusing party A, who's innocent of being the wicked one. The innocent one looks at God and says, weigh us. Test us, try us, and vindicate me. And so God is called on by David to judge And David gives the reasons for this. The rest of the psalm are the reasons, his case for vindication. He's got integrity. Real quick, we're going to cover this at the end of the sermon, but integrity here, integrity, if, if I say he's a man of integrity or she has integrity, what do you understand me to mean? Honest. Yeah, they do what they say. That's, that's a meaning of integrity. There's another meaning of integrity that has to do with kind of the entirety of your life given to one thing. We, if you're in shipbuilding, and I say the hull has integrity, what does that mean? Huh? It's solid. There's no holes. It's, you put it in the water, it's not going to sink. You can trust it. And so integrity here doesn't mean honesty mainly, although that's a part of it. It, it, it means that he's got to focus on one thing. His life is wholeheartedly given to this one thing. And what's the one thing? Gathering with God's people to delight in God's glory. Verse 8. That's what he means by integrity. So that's the reason. Vindicate me. I'm, I've walked in my integrity. I trust you. I keep your steadfast love before my eyes. So he's, he's making his case here. Uh, look at verse 3. If you want one thing from this sermon, maybe take this line. This has been very enjoyable for me, the first half of this line. For your steadfast love is before my eyes. Now, remember, David is here asking God for vindication. But is that the main thing before David's eyes? Does he, is he only hungry to be see, shown right? So when you're in conflict with your spouse or with your child or with somebody at work, what's driving you? I want to win. I want to be right. And so if husband criticizes you, rather than remembering a gentle answer turns away wrath, it's not about being right. I want to maintain peace. What do you do? You lock and load, right? Or if your kid isn't expressing the kind of gratitude you want. What's before your eyes? What, what has your attention? Is it your rightness that you're the most right of all right who's ever been right? Or is it God's steadfast love? You can only have one thing. And, and David's focus is on God's steadfast love. And that word steadfast love is... 
an unmatchable word in Christianity. It, there's no better word. Steadfast love, words, phrase, whatever. What does it mean? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, right? His mercies are made new every morning. We use the word steadfast love. It's all over the place. What, what is that getting at in Scripture? This is God's saving love. This is the love with which he loved you while you were yet dead in your sin that motivated him to bring you into favor with him, not by your goodness, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we read steadfast love, we're reading the death and resurrection of Christ given to you freely by the love of God to redeem you from your sins. That's what he keeps before his eyes. That's what God has his attention. So that's his motivation. That's where he gets his power, his spiritual power. We keep Christ and him crucified right here. Right here. Particularly when you're in conflict with others. Again, Psalm 26 is conflict with another or a group of others. And what do you often have in mind when you're in an argument or when you're in conflict? What's got its hold on you? It isn't the steadfast love of God. Rarely. You've got to fight for that. You have to fight to keep something else other than I'm going to win. I was right. He's wrong. She's wrong. They're wrong. Those Democrats. Again, if I was in a different church, I would say Republicans, but you're mostly all Republicans, so I'm going to say Democrats here because I want to bring conviction to you. How about you keep God's steadfast love before your eyes? No, that doesn't come easy, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we think as Christians that keeping God's great love for me in Christ right there is just easy. I can just coast and it'll happen. It doesn't. It takes a lot of effort. It takes integrity. It takes a devotion to one thing. A commitment to one thing, a motivation for one thing, that I might keep the love of God which motivated him to crucify his son for my sin. Though I'm a carrion-eating buzzard, I want to keep that right there and I'm going to fight for that one thing. I'm not going to fight to win this argument. I'm going to fight to remember Christ's love for me. That's what David's doing here. He's fighting So that's the intro, verses 1 to 3, this prayer for vindication, or namely, he continues on with those reasons in verses 4 and 5. Number one, he, or, namely, he, he so wants God, he keeps God's steadfast love before his eyes that he doesn't find his relational intimacy with those who hate God. Now, there are some Christians who think that the Christian life is such one of isolation from the world that you can't have anything to do with anybody who has sin. 
And so, you know, you see this uh, every once in a while. A Christian will make a list of businesses who are involved in shady things. And what they want you to do is not uh, frequent those businesses because those businesses are involved in bad things and do bad things and pay for bad things and blah, blah, blah. And you know it's impossible to live in this world without doing business with evil, wicked things, right? So David here isn't saying that he never, ever, ever has any contact, relationship with the wicked, men of falsehood, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. I'm not, I'm not talking about those outside the church, about sexual morality. I'm talking about those inside the church. If I were talking about those outside of the church, we'd never be able to go anywhere. What he's talking about is he, he's so allied to God, he's so loyal to God, that God has his heart. God has his loyalty. The men and women of wickedness do not. He's not a worldling. Or to put it in 1 John 2, 15, terms, you cannot love the world and say you love the Father. By love, we mean allegiance, loyalty. Who's got your affection? So he's not forsaking the wicked out of some kind of smug self-righteousness. He's not some goody-goody He's somebody who loves God. So he hates what God hates. Wouldn't that be a step of Christian maturity for you? How many of you have that on your spiritual growth goals for 2022? I want to learn to hate better. <laughs> Isn't it something when you come up against stuff like this in the Bible and you just realize how much growth and maturity you have to do yet? And, and how much we avoid in biblical Christianity the Bible. You have to hate things to be a Christian. You have to learn to hate. And you have to learn to hate more than just people who irritate you. You have to hate those whom God hates. And verses 6 to 8 then get right to the heart of the psalm. David pleads with God for vindication. He gives him the reason. Those reasons include that he will not give ultimate allegiance to those who hate God. And so he wants to join with God's people in God's presence. So verses 6 to 8 are David, it looks like, entering back into worship. Around the altar in the temple was a basin for washing. David knew, though in this situation he was right, in life he was often very wrong. He was a sinner. So he needed cleansing. And notice, this isn't just like he just came to Jesus and he's clean. No, he came to Jesus long before, and every time he comes to worship, what's the first thing he's got to do? Wash. 
It doesn't take coming into God's presence lightly. God is holy. God is eternal. God is the infinite source of all life. And here's David, a sinner in word and thought and in deed. I was driving along the road the other day and I saw a crow eating a uh, dead, what the heck's the name of it? It's the little animal with the goggles, um, gets into your trash, a raccoon. And the raccoon was, I think it got squished by a semi. It was pancake. And I think raccoons are detestable. And a crow was eating a dead one. And then I thought, well, that's me. That, that's how warped my affections are that God offers me the joy and nourishment of his word and of his people, and I would rather have pancake raccoon. That's how bad I am. And so what do I need more than anything when I approach a holy God and worship with God's people? I need to confess. I need to be cleansed. I need to be coming before him with humility. So David does that. I wash my hands. In this, I'm innocent. And I go around your altar. What does he do going around his altar? What, why does he gather with God's people? What's his intent to having been cleansed, I'm with God's people, what is he going to do? He's going to proclaim God's thanksgiving aloud and tell all of God's wondrous deeds. I want you to focus on that word aloud because you know how much I enjoy getting after you on this one. What is the main evaluation of the, the strength, the godliness of our worship. Volume. Now, of course, you can sing real loud and be just an arrogant jerk to your children on the way to church. You, you can sing real loud and have no life in you. But typically, those who've seen that they've been freed from death to life by the sovereign God sing with some volume. I can't help it. Look at all that God has done for you. Look, look, look at all that God is. And we sing quiet. We mouth the words. We won't raise our hands at all. Remember, David is, is no pretty boy. You know what I mean? David is no metrosexual he wouldn't have fit in in Milwaukee or Minneapolis. He would have fit in in Rhinelander. He would have probably worked at the mill. He worked hard. He was a shepherd. He had calluses. Right? He killed the bear with his bare hands. Right, Roger? And he is not ashamed to proclaim all that God has done with him with volume in front of God's people. Why? 
because he loves the glory of God more than being timid at what people might think of him. I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. This is what he loves. This is his love. This is his love. This is his love. And the one thing he couldn't stand is being driven out from that place. Because he wanted to be with God's people where the glory of God dwelt. This was his love. What's your love? What's your love? Don't sentimentalize this. The best of all things is God. And on this side of heaven, the place to most clearly, fully see. It isn't the golf course or the Crescent Lake or, you know, whatever that is for you, your sewing closet. It's right here. Isn't that something? The next psalm, Psalm 27, 4, he'll say it like this. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing. The next three psalms, in fact, Psalm 26, 27, 28, are all about this going to the place where God's glory most fully dwells. Of course, everywhere in the world declares the glory of God. But it's here. Now we know that in this age, after Christ's death and resurrection, no building is sacred. It isn't the building. Yet the church of the living God is the house of God. And true Christians delight in her assemblies, in her preaching, in her ordinances, in her gatherings. That's Matthew Henry. And so there is this pattern to worship. You come before God's holiness, you wash, you proclaim his praises aloud, all because you want to gather with God's people and see the glory of God. I think this is probably the definition of Christian maturity. This is the Christ, uh, definition of integrity. Not in the he's or she is honest sense, but in the what has your life, what holds you together. Continues on in verses 9 and 10. Now, again... This is very helpful to us. David here isn't self-righteous. He's not pharisaical. His next line are, Don't sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life. He knows what he deserves in of himself. This isn't pride. He knows that God would be just to sweep him away with the wicked. But God has set his covenant steadfast love on him. And yet he's still pleading with God for this. And so some of you have wrestled with your assurance of salvation. Am I or am I not saved? I don't know. And here's David saying to God, don't sweep me away with them. 
Is that part of your definition of Christian maturity that you will from time to time say to God, look how bad this world is, God. Don't sweep me away with them either. Isn't that humility? Isn't that fear God? And look at verse 11. The same, almost it seems confusion. As for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. I'm going to walk in holiness, but oh God, redeem me from my sin. May your grace be mine. I'm going to walk in integrity. Redeem me. Isn't that a paradox? Isn't that the enigma of the Christian life? Isn't that the Christian life? You say both in the same sentence. I am committed to living righteous and God have mercy on me. If you just say the first, nobody will want to be around you. If all you ever focus on is how good you are and how pretty your family is and every Facebook post is perfect, you're very difficult to be around. You're unbearable. If you only say the second, oh, God, have mercy on me. I'm so bad. I just can't ever do anything good. I'm broken. It's just the same. But if you say both, I am committed to walking in holiness before God, and oh, God, have mercy on my soul. That's a Christian. Because when you have the steadfast love that has redeemed you from your sin before your eyes, it motivates you to want to be holy. And in chapter, verse 12, that's confidence. That's security. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. So I think he's peeking here into eternity in the great assembly. The one thing that has his heart now, his integrity of person is that he wants to gather with God's people to see God's glory because he's looking forward to the day when he gets to see God's glory no longer through faith but through his eyes with all of God's people in the great assembly. So that's Psalm 26. I, I want to look at two more things briefly. First, this desire to be vindicated. One error... And I don't think it's a significant one, um, but it is one, is that Christians may subtly be taught that it's never, ever right to seek your own vindication. Well, that isn't true. That isn't true. Now, we, we, we have to see the context here. David isn't here dealing with little petty things, like squabbled between siblings. Mom! She touched me. And the next prayer isn't, vindicate me, oh God. Like, those little things aren't what we're talking about here for vindication. Or at work, boss, he took the tool again. And it's not talking about the little petty annoyances. Talking about very serious things that cause your integrity, your character into question that would keep you from living, from gathering with God's people. You know, so reputation and leadership. 
serious accusations that would be ruinous or very harmful to your life. Now, of course, as Christians, if we're going to follow Jesus, this is part of the deal. Jesus tells us, blessed are you when people say all kinds of things false against you and accuse you for my name's sake. Right? That's part of the deal. And yet, what do we do? We plead with God. So, vindication can be a good thing, but it's a very powerful desire, isn't it? The desire to be right, we can't indulge it. We have to be very careful not to have this be our main motivation in life. Some of you are very competitive. You're A-type, you win at all costs. Every argument is a hill to die on. Everything is black and white, and you are always right. I'm not being hyperbolic here. Some of you really ever struggle to confess that you've done something wrong because in your mind, all you think is that you're right. And so the, the first impulse in a Christian isn't vindicate me, but taking the plank out of our own eye, right? And Jesus has to say that because the temptation is to be speck hunting in other people's eyes. Now, ultimate vindication is only in Jesus Christ through faith, right? And that vindication is with the holy God in heaven. And if we have that, then all these petty things, who cares? Be at peace with others. When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, what does he mean? Is he actually talking about somebody who did you, you know, physical harm? And somebody just came and cold cocked you. Is he saying like, yeah, let him do it again? No, he's talking about an insult. He's talking about personal relationship and conflict. He's talking about what your siblings do to you. And what he's saying is peace is a high virtue in the Christian faith. How do you keep peace in conflict? Don't return fire for fire. Turn the other cheek. But a fool shows his irritation at once. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a fool shows his irritation at once. So is there anything more helpful to your marriage than what I just said? But if we have God's steadfast love before our eyes, if we know we're ultimately vindicated through faith in Jesus Christ, you can put the weapons down. You can put the defense down. So vindication matters, but not ultimately. What ultimately matters is God's steadfast love that calls you to worship him for his glory. And we have that. So put the weapons down. Second, I want to talk about this issue of Christian integrity. It bookends this psalm. I have walked in my integrity. In verse 11, I shall walk in my integrity. So you have the past. I have walked. And I shall walk. I will walk. And again, here by integrity, he's not meaning mainly honest, although that's a part of it. He's not saying somebody who tells the truth mainly. Of course, that's part of it. He's talking about a wholeness of life, a 
unity of life, a aspect of your life that holds your life together that you've given your life to as the main thing. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Let me do it this way. Uh, I've told you last week, we're headed to the Boundary Waters in about four hours. And the last two weeks, that has had had my attention more than anything else. I've had canoes to repair, stuff to buy, stuff to pack, lots of stuff. And the last three days, it's really all that's been on my mind. I haven't even read my Bible on Friday or Saturday. I didn't realize it until I got here. What? You haven't read your Bible either yesterday or today. What are you talking about? Vindicate me, oh God. I'll show you some vindication after this service, kid. I'm just kidding. Right? That's, that's had my attention. That's, that's been my integrity of person. And so that, we're all going to have those things through our life, right? I'm not being too hard on myself. I've confessed it. God is gracious. I've learned. But that kind of focus, that kind of, this is what my being is about. This is why I'm here. That's what he means by integrity. So he, this is what we want to aim at in our Christian life. Why are you here? What's your life for? Isn't it to know and enjoy God forever? Isn't that it? Isn't it to gather with God's people to see his glory in the hopes of one day gathering with all of God's people to see his glory? That should be the integrity of our person. And that's what causes us to say no to so many things in this life. You get that? We don't just say no to things because we say no to things because we're so good. That's kind of the self-righteousness. That's the Pharisee. We say no to things because we don't want them to take away from our seeking of God's glory with God's people or because God has said no to them and we so love God's glory. We love God that we'll say no to these things. This is why David says no to relationships with certain people. Parents, this is why you're going to have to say no to some relationships with your kids. That, the motivation is love for God. That's the integrity of our person. Are you tracking with me? That's why we do what we do. It's not of just some sense of moral superiority. It's because we love God. Why won't you kill your baby if you're 17 and get pregnant? Because you love God. Because you fear God. Why won't you keep your, refuse to keep your phone in front of your face and ignore all the people around you? Because you love God. And God has put these people there and you want to please God with these people. You understand? Why do you keep the Sabbath? Why do we honor God and keep this day holy and different and use it for seeking him? Not just for doing our own pleasures and recreations. Why is this day given you to worship God? Why do you keep this day? Because you love God. Because you want his glory. So that's the question. Do you actually want his glory? Do you? Let's pray.
Father, help us to be more like this. And the only way, too, is for you to give us the grace of seeing what you've done for us in your son again. That your love has been displayed through the sacrifice of your son. Not that we loved you, but that you loved us and made your son the propitiation, the sacrifice that takes away your wrath for our sin. So help us see that love. And that while we were sinners, your son died for us. And that you being so great and so loving towards us in Christ, that we might love you first, chiefly. And so, God, we know, we feel how pitiful that is in our lives. And we ask for increase of it, for progress in it, please, just a little bit, that we might love you more, that we might seek you more, that we might desire your glory more. And so, God, have mercy on us. Redeem us. In Jesus' name, amen.